I am so glad that you guys are in the book of Acts, right? I mean, it's just an amazing... I love that, this part of Scripture. I love all the historical narratives, right? And I also love, of course, the Gospels. And the reason why I like those books is because they are like crime reports. I mean, they are. They're like crime reports where something is being reported that you could actually test in some way. You, you could see, well, is that... There's evidence that's presented, and you could actually see if this thing actually occurred the way they said it occurred. Have you ever thought of it that way? Is that a weird way to think about it? But if you look at the, you guys are in Acts 15 right now, just finishing, I think, Acts 15, getting close to the end there. And if you step into the next chapter, well, look, you've already seen it. Paul is a, a mover. Paul is always on the move. He, he plants churches. He stays for some churches for some time and builds them and, and makes sure that the, the people are prepared to defend the truth. And then he moves around quite a bit. Look at this map. You'll see the next chapter a description of where he and Timothy are about to go together, all over the place in Galatia, all the way down to Traus. You'll see that this is a, a, a pattern in Paul's life, is he is a man who's on the move. But look at where he's moving from. Here's the map again. Take a look at it. A lot of these routes are across the blue part of the map. The blue part of the map, of course, is the, of the seas. So a lot of this is by boat. But I'll just isolate. All of this is by land. And if you look at the land he has to travel across, it's quite a bit. That might look like nothing to you now, right? Because we live in California, so you can't go anywhere where you're not traveling for four hours to get there, right? But you, so this is hard to do if there aren't roads. And in the first century, there just happened to be roads. But that wasn't true in the first century B.C. It was true in the first century A.D. because these roads were only built about a hundred years before Paul walked on them. No roads, much harder to travel. Roads actually, believe it or not, are essential to the story. Now, I only bring this up because I love looking at cases, historical events, and then trying to figure out why did that historical event happen the way it happened, and is there something about the way it came to be that will explain the suspect involved? See, most of my cases are homicides. I work cold case murders in Los Angeles County. These are just cases of, uh, there's no statute of limitations on a murder. I don't know if you ever thought about that or not. But like if you do a robbery, a few years later, I can't work it because the, the statute closes it. But murders stay open. If you like Dateline, I have been on Dateline more than anybody else. And my cases are still available. Just Google J. Warner Wallace Dateline and you'll see all of them. Now, the reality of it is, here you're just tracing, like, why, what was the set of events that caused this particular suspect to commit this particular crime? And then afterwards, why did it take so dang long for us to solve it, right? That's always the question. I got some of my cases are still open. I got cases on the agency from 1970, 1980 that my son will probably have to reopen. He's there now. He's been there for 10 years. He has the same name I have because we're such creative people. And... <laughs> And, and I, my name was Jimmy when I was all my life until I was 27 and I had this knucklehead and then I had lost my name. <laughs> I, I intended to call him Jim, but not Jimmy. That was my name. But you know what happens. So he was little Jimmy and I was Jimmy. And I gave him my uniforms because we worked at the same agency at Torrance PD. And I got my uniforms from my dad, which is why I'm a Jimmy because this dude here is Jim. Pretty uncreative, huh? 
So, so the three of us, I mean, I was telling the other service that, I kid you not, my son took a phone call from somebody recently, because we've been at the same agency with the same name for 61 years. So my son gets a phone call, and he picks it up, and he identifies himself as Detective Wallace, and the guy stops. He says, Detective Wallace? He says, yeah. He says, are you still working there? <laughs> he thinks he's my dad. He thinks my son is my dad. Like, we work at the police department for 60 years, right? So, but, so it, it happens. Now, now, when you make a case, and I'm going to try to give you some information today that will help you make the case. I want you to be able to make a case for what is true. I want you to be able to make a case to your own kids, to your neighbors, to your family members. Like, this is hard enough right now in Christianity. I don't think that people want to wear the T-shirt anymore. I think they feel like, hey, Christianity is at the end of the spear constantly now. It's the constant point of criticism. If you're going to be a Christian, stand by. You're probably going to get criticized by the culture. And if we're getting criticized by the culture for something that's not even true, how many people do you think are going to hang around? How many young people do you think we're going to be able to convince this is worth your life? If it's just a matter of personal opinion. What if, though, it's true? True in a way that transcends me. Not subjectively true. What if it's objectively true? That would change everything. And I want to be able to help you make that case first to yourself and then to the people in your life. Look, in the end, I was asked a couple of years ago to make an objective case for the reliability of Scripture. They gave me six minutes to do it. Six minutes. And they said, hey, you can write your own script. But that sounded good when I, the offer came. But, but then I realized, how do I make this case in six minutes? It's a train wreck, right? It's hard. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk you through something I teach at Biola. When I teach it at Biola, I take 18 class hours to teach it. We're going to do it in about, well, I'm going to keep you here about 15 hours. Is that a problem? <laughs> we just lock the doors. There won't be any food. And no bathroom stops either. 15 hours, baby. Are you ready? No, I won't be that bad. I'm going to talk about something that I wrote about in a book called Person of Interest, okay? Here's the thought experiment. Because when I first looked at this, I was not a believer. I walked into a large church in Southern California. I was 35 years old. I had no interest in Christianity at all. But my wife thought, hey, we're raising kids. Should we raise them in the church? I said, yeah, if you want. So I took about three years to say no. And then eventually I went with her to church. The pastor was not wearing a, you know, a, a jacket. He was just a regular guy. And he said that Jesus, he said a lot of things, but he said that Jesus was the smartest man who ever lived. And I thought, really? Wouldn't I expect there to be like more of a splash if Jesus is who he said he was than just these four gospel accounts? I mean, it seems to me if you throw a rock as big as Jesus in the pond, there should be a lot of ripples. I had no idea how many ripples there were, though. I want to show you the ripples today. So I want you to have this thought experiment. Imagine we're in some future dystopian world where they've collected every piece of Christian scripture, every New Testament document, every papyrus, everything that leads up to the formation of the New Testament. We've destroyed all of it. Successfully taken every piece of Christian scripture, put it in a big pile, and burned it. Now we can eradicate Jesus from history. It turns out it wouldn't be that easy. I've had cases where you have a crime scene, and there's a body, and there's blood spatter, and there's a weapon, and there's some material evidence, and we'll put a big piece of tape around the scene, and then we'll investigate it, and we'll come to a conclusion. But I've also had cases where we have no evidence in the crime scene at all. 
This often happens when a guy kills his wife. He waits four days, gets rid of the body. Then he comes into the station and he says, you know, my wife and I, we had an argument five days ago, and she hasn't come home. That gets assigned to a detective about a week later. Now we're 12 days behind the case. It goes cold. 30 years later, I go to the property room. There's not a single piece of evidence booked in under that DR number. Nothing. Because it was never investigated as murder. It was a missing person. Now it's a no-body murder. I have no body. I have no evidence. How do you solve these cases? Now, I have a suspect in mind. It's usually, sorry, wives, it's your husband. <laughs> usually. So if you remember when you're sleeping at night, keep one eye open in your husband's direction. <laughs> right? You can't trust your husband. Husbands are killers. Did you know that? <laughs> oh, yeah. So I have him as a suspect in my mind, but the question is, how do I prove it when I've got no evidence in the crime scene? How do I know he's a person of interest? Well, I always tell people that every crime is a result of a timeline. There's a period of time before the crime occurs, and there's a period of time after the crime occurs. And it turns out that those two periods of time can tell you what happens in the middle. It's as if, you know, look, on that day, if she went missing, well, that was voluntary, no big deal. But if she was killed by somebody, she was killed by her husband, well, that's an explosive day that has a runway, has a ramp before it happens. It's kind of like a bomb going off on the day she was murdered. And every bomb has a fuse. And the fuse burns over a period of years as he's becoming more and more upset or he starts to cheat on her or he starts to purchase all the stuff he needs to kill her and all, all the stuff he needs to dispose of the body. And then on the day he kills her, that's an explosive day. And then afterwards, there's shrapnel and debris everywhere. Well, it turns out, if you don't know what happened on that day, you can pretty much figure it out from the fuse and the fallout. So I call these cases nobody murders. I call these fuse and fallout cases. I think I've had at least one on Dateline, maybe two. And you can kind of see how we work these. And so you can figure out who the person of it. You can figure out if there's even a felony at all from just the fuse and the fallout. So in a real trial, what you would do is you would show the jury all the events that occur, when he started talking about it, when he started planning about it, when he met that girlfriend, when he purchased that acid in that barrel to burn the body, all of that stuff. And then after the thing occurs, you can show them all the stuff that he did that demonstrates that he's the killer. It's fuse and fallout. Are we clear? Okay. Well... I remember examining um, Christianity for the first time. Like, I had a hard way in. I didn't own a Bible. I did not, I'm not somebody who wants to believe something without good reason, without good evidence. So I spent about nine months examining the case for Christianity. And one of the things I examined was the fuse and fallout of history leading up to the first century. Because I thought, if Jesus is who he said he is, I would expect bigger ripples in history, right? Bigger fallout. And I would expect that history would somehow align itself for his appearance. If he's God incarnate, God is in control of history. Wouldn't you expect to see the fuse a certain way and the fallout a certain way? Well, it turns out it's amazing the fuse and fallout. And most of us just don't know it because we haven't been taught this in school. So I want to show you a couple of pieces of the fuse and then a couple of, oh, one thing in the fallout, okay? I want to show you both the spiritual and cultural fuse. It turns out that what you're studying in the book of Acts with Pastor Mike, that, that actually, there's stuff in the fuse that will explain what you're about to study, both cultural stuff in the fuse and spiritual stuff in the fuse. Both, you're going to see this both in uh, Acts 15 and 16. You're going to see it even in Acts 17. Let me show you what I mean. 
It turns out that culture has to progress to a certain point in order for the message of Jesus to be transmitted broadly across the known world. And that means an empire has to rise that has the mechanism by which the story can be told. You know, if you don't have papyrus being used broadly, if you don't have a common Etruscan language being used broadly, if you aren't speaking Koine Greek broadly in a culture, it's hard to disseminate an idea within a region. But if the region's large because it's controlled by Rome, stuff changes. So, for example, one of the things that Rome... Now, remember, Rome starts off more or less as a city-state. So here's the fuse that burns up to the first century. There's the bomb. Part of that fuse is the rise of the Roman Empire, and you'll see this begins around the 8th century. It really comes into its prominence. Uh, it's just founded early. It's kind of got an interesting mythological uh, story about the founding of Rome. But by the 6th century, you really have it as a budding kind of republic, a city-state. It's growing. There's lots of other cultures, though, that are competing with the Roman culture. So this is not a big deal yet. But as it grows in power, it starts to take over regions. Sure enough, eventually it controls the entire Italian peninsula, and it continues to grow. Then it controls the region. It even controls much of the Mediterranean. And then finally, under the leadership of somebody known as Augustus Caesar... It takes over pretty much everything surrounding the Mediterranean. All the other empires, from the Egyptian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Persian Empire, will eventually bend their knee to the Romans. So if you were to show up in history in these locations, well, you're, the idea, the, the notion, the, 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 the truth about Jesus would stay within the region controlled by that empire. Under the Roman Empire, though, we had access to the entire known world. Let me show you what I mean in terms of a map, okay? Let's take a look at a map of that region of the known world at the time where most people were living and alive. Now, we're going to also connect Asia to this in a minute, but I want you to see that if you show up during, say, for example, the Egyptian Empire, this is the region your story would be told. If you show up during the Persian Empire, this is the region your story would be told. It's a larger region, at least. If you show up during the Greek Empire, this is the region which your story would be told. And of course, by the time the Romans come in, they said, you know what, we're just taking it all. Now, a story can travel, or at least it can begin to travel, because if you go back to our timeline of the Roman Empire, Rome has control. Augustus is ruling. And then there's this amazing period of time, 200 years in which all global wars come to an end because Rome pretty much controls everybody. They've colonized everything. And because they've colonized everything, there's peace called the Pax Romana. It's the most famous 200-year period of peace in human history. And there it is. And it feels like we've had peace since World War II, but if you think about it, we really we haven't because we are in so many different places in the world. But in terms of the known world empires that ruled, this was the largest and longest period of peace. And what was Rome during, doing during this period of peace? Well, they stopped sending, spending money on war. They basically controlled everything. They started spending money on infrastructure, medical services, buildings, postal service, and roads. They started to build roads like no one else. Now look, in order to have roads, you have to have vehicles. And the first vehicles are, came into existence because of the invention of the wheel. I always think, isn't that interesting? Like there was a time before there were wheels. It's almost like those cartoons. It was like a big square. You just went clunk, clunk, clunk. Then they said, yeah, let's just round that off so it'll be a little easier. 
And then eventually you start to see this happening, apply these to vehicles that were really not intended to travel. They were intended to lift and move heavy objects or to do work on farms. You'll see the first four-wheel wagons are really farm vehicles. No one's traveling anywhere. You know why? There's no roads. So you stayed on your property and you basically built things with these vehicles. Now, when wars were waged, eventually you'll see chariots are being used. But even in these times, there aren't really roads for a long time to come. And then the first significant roads are not built by Rome. They're built by Persia. Persians had excellent roads. But they were limited to the Persian region. So they wouldn't get you very far, at least not globally. So you had these Persian roads. Well, the Romans took the Persian roads, and after they conquered the area, they started to expand, you know, because the Greeks didn't have very good roads. The Greeks were a maritime. All those sea routes you saw that Paul traveled, those were established by the Greek empire. Greece is very hilly. There's not a lot of roads they were developing. They never mastered roads. The Romans, though, the Romans mastered roads, and they didn't do it because they were nice. They didn't do it because they wanted you guys to travel to, you know, to, to England. They did it because they wanted to move war machines. They were thinking about wars in the future, and they wanted to establish armies and move them. They even connected the Silk Road to China. So at some point, yes, all roads would lead to Rome. Romans had excellent roads, the very roads that Paul is going to walk on. As a matter of fact, of those seven churches that John talks about in the book of Revelation, at least two of them were planted by Paul using roads that were not available even 60 years before Paul was born. They were built by the Romans. So you can actually, and by the way, because they were moving big war machines, they couldn't turn them quickly. They weren't that sophisticated. They basically were like, like pulling a wagon without a turnable front. So you kind of have to then turn and lift it and turn. So you don't want to make a lot of turns. So here's what the Romans said. We're not going around stuff. We're going to go through stuff. We're going to go over stuff. More tunnels and bridges were built by Romans than any other culture. The very tunnels and bridges that the evangelists would eventually walk. So if you were to show up somewhere in history earlier, well, it'd be harder to take a message. And you saw how far Paul went. He went all over the place. Why? Because the roads were going all over the place. Without the roads, Paul's going to have a harder time going. So if you wait until the roads are in place, or if that happens, well, then you can see true progress. So I just kind of gave you a little background on what has to happen in the cultural fuse to set the table for something that's going to happen in the first century with a person named Jesus. Let me give you one more weird thing. I was a youth pastor for years, and when I was taking my youth groups to Berkeley, UC Berkeley, to do some um, evangelism on the campus of UC Berkeley, that's a great place to learn about atheism, right? <laughs> and there are a bunch of schools that are like this that we continue to, like uh, Colorado University of Colorado, Boulder. There's a lot of places, Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin at Madison. These are places that are kind of like the Berkeleys of their region. And when you go there, you will find that the teachers, many of them are people who don't believe Jesus even lived, ever. They believe instead that he is a recreation of prior myths. In other words, if you look at the other fuse we're talking about, it's not a transportation fuse, it's not a cultural fuse, it's a spiritual fuse. Here's all of the, I mean, these are the major deities, there's hundreds of deities. But these are the major deities that preceded Jesus. You realize that people have been thinking about God since there were people. Seriously. We did studies last year, two years ago, 
86% of humans on planet Earth believe there is a higher power. Did you know that? We have now done studies because you used to think, oh, everyone's naturally born an atheist. You knucklehead religious people have to teach them there's a God. No, it turns out it's just the opposite. And it's frustrating for a lot of atheist researchers because it turns out that we are innately believe there is a God. We as children look at an environment that we looks, looks like it's designed and we infer the existence of a designer. Even like in, in places like Harvard, they've, dis they've discovered that what they say is that theism, the belief in God, is bred in the bone. It's part of our genetic structure. Atheism, they said, they discovered this just two years ago, atheism by survey is the acquired position. Someone's gotta talk you out of it, your belief in theism. This has been going on for thousands of years. Even the ancients thought there were gods. And they would describe them with the common expectations of ancients. So a lot of skeptics today, and this is a relatively new occurrence, I'd say in the last 40 years, they've been writing books talking about how Jesus never really existed. He's just another myth and a series of myths. They're all very similar. They're all dying and rising saviors. That's not actually true, but okay. They'll try to make them sound like they are, and they will call these people Jesus mythers. They believe that Jesus is a myth. I wanted to know if that was true. I remember the first trip we took to Berkeley, I'll never forget it. We had uh, someone come up to the front, an atheist presenter, and he was going to tell our kids why there was no God. And he gave a list of all the attributes of a God, and they sounded just like Jesus. And then he said, that's not Jesus, that's Mithras. 400 years before Jesus, that's the story that Jesus was stolen from. None of what he said was true. He just flat out lied to our kids. But if you don't know, if you haven't researched it, you wouldn't know he's lying. So I've researched it. I hired two research assistants during the COVID year. I'll tell you, that was a crazy year, COVID, right? But all my speaking engagements got canceled. So I wrote a book. I was home every day. I was home right here. I live right by this I'm pretty close. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to examine this and see what are the common characteristics there are 15 common characteristics of all ancient mythologies. Did you know that? And I, I'm a good Baptist. I decided to make them all begin with the letter I. <laughs> I want you to appreciate how hard that was, okay? Because some of these words I'd never even heard of before, but I found them and they were close enough. We're calling it that. It begins with an I, okay? So I'm going to show you the 15 common characteristics. Now, why they are common is because... People, like you and I, if we think there's a God, we probably think he has certain characteristics. For example, if you think there's a God, you probably think he's powerful. Common characteristic. Well, duh. So here are the 15 common characteristics. I'm going to go through a few of them. Not all of them, just a few. First of all, many of them are foretold. Because let's face it, we've been thinking about God for generations. And then somebody will say, well, you know, I remember three generations. We were talking about this three generations ago. So you'll see that many of the ancient myths involve a God that has been foretold in some way. But that seems to me to be one of those expectations I would expect. And you'll see this, for example, with Zoroaster. But you also see it with Jesus, right? The prophets foretold him. You also see that for some of these, not all, but many of them, they are somehow royal. They are descended from kings, or they are kings. Well, why would that happen? Because the ancients think, okay, God is powerful. If God is powerful, what do I have as an analogy in my life that is powerful? Well, the king is powerful. So you often will see gods portrayed in some way as having royal kingly power. 
But that, to me, seems like a common expectation. If you're thinking about God, the ancients would attribute this to God. And you'll see, for example, Adonis in this way. One more. Most of them uh, appear in the world in a weird way, a weird supernatural way. Because I think the ancients thought, well, God is supernatural and unusual. He's going to appear in the world in a supernatural and unusual way. So like Mithras, he emerges out of the side of a mountain, leaving a hole in the mountain. That's pretty unusual, right? Oh, you know, some of them are born out of the thigh of another god or out of a plant or something. They enter into the world in an unusual way. But that doesn't surprise me because if we're thinking about God in this way, these are the ancient stories that we tell each other about God. Here are all 15 attributes. Yes, they all begin with I. Do you guys even know what an inveigled means? I don't even know what inveigled means, but it begins with an I. So it's on my list. Now, I'm going to make it easier for you. I'm going to give you the timeline. Here's the entire ancient history leading up to the appearance of Jesus in the first century. Let's start burning a fuse. We will now list every ancient deity of significance, every ancient deity leading up to the appearance of Jesus. I'll put them on the timeline when they existed, when they were worshipped. And above them, you can kind of barely see it, above them I'm going to put the attributes they possess. I don't expect you to read all that. What I want to show you, though, is that you can see that not every deity has all 15 attributes. Would you agree? Some of these deities have as few as four. Some have as most. The most I can find is 10. So four of these have 10 attributes of the 15 I've described. Here are the four. These four have the most attributes. What you don't see is some scholar who is saying, you know, I think that Zoroaster is a recreation of Osiris. Really? Why not? He shares attributes. I think that Buddha is just a recreation of Dionysus. Well, why wouldn't you say that? He shares because you don't see that because they, they aren't similar at all. They just have broad similarities. They, they came about supernaturally, but in two entirely weird different ways. No one is saying these were borrowed from each other. So why are we saying that Jesus is borrowed from somebody? Because it works. Because no one's doing this work. No one's actually reading these things. Read them. They are not like Jesus, but they do possess these 15 common attributes. I'll give you an example. What's the one attribute that all of them possess? All of them can do miracles. They all have supernatural, like, like, duh. If you think there's a God, I expect him to do God stuff. That's all we're saying here. He does God stuff. Well, okay, that, okay, so you stole that from the other God? No, all gods do God stuff. Also, some of these, but not all, they appear in a weird supernatural way, but not all of them. There's a couple of breaks there in that line. Some of them, but not all of them, can defeat death. I would expect that of God. I would expect them also maybe to grant that to us, the ability to defeat death. But not all of them do, but most of them do. So let's go back to our list. Here's what I thought was really interesting. It turns out that none of these deities have more than about 10 attributes, 10 of the 15. Some have as few as four. So if you have an expectation of God, it turns out the myth that comes out of your culture is probably somehow lacking. It's not complete, but it's close. Some are closer than others. Until you get to the first century. Then someone shows up in history who possesses all 15 attributes. 
I didn't work backwards here. I didn't look at how many attributes Jesus has and then look for them in others. I simply listed on a plain reading of Scripture, what are the common attributes? And then sure enough, Jesus has all of them. What are the odds of that? Oh, because he's stolen from, really? So let me get this right. So these are all pagan mythologies. So you're telling me that Jewish writers in a Jewish culture looking to persuade other Jews that there's a Jewish Messiah when the entire history of Jews has been, Yahweh says you will worship no other God but me. Those are all false gods. If you even marry women who are worshiping those false gods, you will be damned. You're telling me that that group of Jews decides they're going to persuade other Jews that this Jew is the Jewish Messiah by making him look exactly like pagan mythologies? Maybe. I don't think so. I think that's ridiculous. But what's interesting, and this is how Lewis puts it, C.S. Lewis puts it this way, that Christ is simply a true myth. Now, he's using the word myth not to say a, uh, a fairy tale. He's using the word myth the way it's classically understood, a narrative about deity. Got it? He says the story of Christ is simply a true myth, a myth working on us the same way as the others, but with this tremendous difference that it really happened. And one must be content to accept it in the same way, remembering that it is God's myth, where the others are simply men's myth. That's right. The pagan stories are God expressing himself through the minds of poets, keep that in mind, while using such images as he found there, while Christianity is God expressing himself through what we call, hmm, let's see, real things. Paul quotes the poets in the next chapter in Acts 17. He says in Mars Hill, you people are very religious. You have worship a lot of gods. Even the poets mention things about God. He quotes a poet. He said, but we saw God. I'm here to tell you about the God that meets all of your expectations. The God you've been imagining is there's actually a real God, and he's going to blow you out of your socks. That's the story of, of, Mar, of Mars Hill in Acts 17, really. Now look, why would God do it this way? Why would God come and meet the expectations of ancients when it comes to Jesus? I think it's about getting a good response. Let me give it to you this way. So I worked undercover for a number of years. My son's doing that right now, and it's a great job. It's the funnest job you're ever going to work in law enforcement. We were a surveillance team. We would watch guys do mostly robberies. And back in those days, we had a lot of bank robberies in our city, so I watched a lot of guys do bank robberies. There's nothing more fun than watching a guy do a bank robbery, okay? <laughs> there just isn't. And, but I used to do a lot of burglaries, a lot of residential burglaries. And when you do residential burglaries, you hopefully get an informant who tells you, yeah, Joe Smith, he is doing burglaries. He's a drug addict. Oh, really? I don't know Joe Smith, but I just get up on him and I watch him for a couple of weeks. And sure enough, when he runs out of drug money, he does a burglary and we take him to jail. But if you don't have an informant telling you that Joe Smith's doing burglaries, you're basically doing what we call a geographic surveillance. Those are super lame, Okay. Because you, you don't know who's doing burglary. You don't know when they're going to do it. You're sitting in neighborhoods hoping it happens in front of you. How stupid is that? But we were bored, so we, one day we go to the West End, and we're sitting in this neighborhood where we would be getting hit. And we're sitting there for like two, three days, about third day in. I'm sitting in the neighborhood. I got five partners. We're all in plain clothes. We're all working in plain cars. We're just sitting in neighborhoods, killing time, waiting to see if something happens. And I hear a radio call go out on, on dispatch. Because I have my, I'm in a, a car that has a radio for, for the, the patrol officers. 
and I hear a call go out, take a report. Two blocks from where I was sitting, a burglary had occurred. And now there's a victim waiting at the curb for a police officer to take a report. I'm thinking, I'm going to hop that call. I'm going to go over there right now and interview this guy because for all I know, he might have seen something. If he saw a car maybe parked on the street before, whatever that description is, I'm going to give it to my guys. Maybe we can catch these guys before they leave. So I race over there. I scream up in front of this guy and I park on the street. And I hop out of the car. He's waiting for a police officer to take a report. I hop out of the car. I look like this. Okay. I, these for five years, my agency would call me the hair god. That's what they called me, the hair god. Where's hair god? Call hair god, get him on this thing. I didn't cut my hair for four years. I actually became a Christian during this time. Yeah, I have a baptism photo with that hair. <laughs> so I get out of the car, I start talking to this guy. He doesn't give me a, like, three words. He's just blowing me off. And I'm getting angry. And then, sure enough, the patrol officer pulls up and gets out of his car, and he starts talking to this guy, and he gives him every bit of information he wants from him. Well, why is that happening? Well, because he had called a police officer, and I got out of the car, and I didn't meet his expectations. He wasn't expecting that. He was expecting this. Expectations matter. The more the expected meets the expectations of the expector, the better the response. This is true. The more the expectations meet, the expected meets the expectations the expector is expecting, the better the response. This is not just true for me. This is also true for Jesus. He met the expectations. If there is a God, you would have watched Jesus and said, that's God. Because you already had some idea in your mind of what God would be like. And then when you see it, you're going, dude, that's it. So let's go back to our spiritual fuse for a second. So I'm going to put on the wall here real quickly. I'm going to put on the wall uh, the period of time in which the ancient mythologies are being worshipped. So for example, Osiris is not still being worshipped, but he was worshipped from about 3300 to about 250. Now I'm going to put every other mythology on the wall so you can see when they were worshipped. Some of these are still being worshipped. They still worship Buddha. They still worship Indra. These are still deities that are being worshipped. So you'll see them go off the side here. But most of them have a start time and a finish time. And I'm only doing this because I want you to see something. If you are God and you wanted to come into human history at a time when the most active groups are worshiping deities that share the 15 common expectations that Jesus then is going to personify most robustly, you would have to come at a time when these groups are still actively worshiping, and that wasn't forever. As a matter of fact, you'd have to come in this red zone. If you come in that red zone, you're going to catch the most number of groups that are looking for those 15 things. Well, Jesus comes in that red zone. That to me was pretty remarkable, but it gets better. Let's overlap this now with the Roman Empire that comes up the cultural fuse, the beginning of the Roman Empire, how they're establishing that infrastructure. They've now adopted the Etruscan language. They're working on papyrus. They are building roads. They are building a postal service in place. You can communicate the message broadly. And they are developing a culture that's so strong that it brings stability to the area and even a 200-year period of peace called the Pax Romana in which it was safe for someone like Paul and Timothy to travel on those roads. Well, if you wanted to come in this period of time and capture both red zones, now the red zone is smaller. 
Jesus comes in that red zone. The one time you could come and capture the imagination of all those who are expecting God, yet also be able to transport that information broadly. But it gets better. There's a third strand I didn't show you, and that's the prophecies of the Old Testament prophets. Daniel, in Daniel 9, says that Jesus is going to, the Messiah is going to come between two points in time. The destruction, I mean, sorry, the, uh, the uh, edict to restore Jerusalem, and there's some conversation about when that may be, but I think this is not a bad date to put this right here about 444 B.C., and I've written about this. And then it says in the same prophecy that Jesus, that the Messiah will be able to walk into the temple. The temple is only available until 70 A.D. before it's destroyed. So if you're going to fulfill that prophecy, you have to show up sometime in this uh, space here. Now I want you to look at the red zone. If you want to show up and match the prophecies, fulfill the expectations of ancients, and appear in a period of time in which the message can be distributed broadly, even globally, this is when you've got to show up. That's the 100-year period of time. And in the middle third of that 100 years is the 33-year life of Jesus of Nazareth. He's right in the middle of it. And when I saw that, I said, wow, what are the odds? Three very different strands of history, fuses that are leading up to this. And this is what changes it. This is why I think you see as one of many reasons why Paul says this, that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That fuse, I think, is interesting. Let me show you one quick aspect of the fallout, and then I'm going to let you have a nice Sunday. Uh, we talked about these two of these three fuses, and now we're going to talk about one aspect of the fallout. I'm just going to focus on the last one. I call it exaltation. Again, I had to name everything the same way because I'm a Baptist. I don't know if you noticed this, let me back up. Did you notice that here, everything ends with the word T-I-O-N, dissemination, imagination, education, exploration, exaltation? Do I get credit for that? Do I get an amen for that? Okay, thank you. Good. Just wanted to make sure. So here we go. We're going to talk about this one. This is the, the rise of other world religions. No one's had an impact on art, music, literature, education, science, and world religions like Jesus of Nazareth. That's part of the fallout. Nobody in history has had a bigger impact on art, literature, education, science, and world religions than Jesus. It's just true, folks. And when I talk about world religions, I want you to imagine. So you have this timeline, right? You have the world religions that appear in the fuse leading up to Jesus, and then you have the world religions that appear after Jesus. Would you be surprised to know that all of the world religions that initiate after Jesus, they all include Jesus in some way? He is either mentioned, merged, or modified into their religion, every single one of these. Well, duh. These came after Christianity, and Christianity was pretty big. But what if I told you that so many of the religions that preceded Jesus also mention, merge, or modify themselves to include Jesus? How can that be? These precede Jesus. They wouldn't even have known about Jesus. Yes, but many of these extended into the common era. And once they got on that side of history, they said, we're going to include Jesus in ours. That's weird to me. Let me show you what I mean. Let's go, let's go to a uh, kind of a, a timetable that has all, I'll start at 1 o'clock on this dial, will be the most ancient thing, and at 12 o'clock will be the most recent. So I'll put the world religions around this circle. For example, Hinduism, there are still a lot of Hindus that are out there, and Hinduism loves them some Jesus. They do. As a matter of fact, 
he's considered to be within the, pan, within the, uh, the structure of Hinduism. He is considered divine within Hinduism. Hindu teachers teach this. Their writings have now locked this in. Jesus matters to Hindus. As a matter of fact, when they're describing Jesus, they end up repeating the story of Jesus. So you could actually recover the story of Jesus from Hindu teaching, even if you destroyed every New Testament. So if you're someplace in the world where Hinduism reigns, you know something about Jesus from your Hindu teachers and your Hindu scripture. Addis is not being worshipped anymore. No one's worshiping Addis anymore. But interestingly, after Jesus arrives, people who were worshiping Addis changed the story of Addis to make him sound more like Jesus. So sometimes these skeptics will say, well, Jesus was borrowed. He was borrowed from example from Addis. Uh, no, study the history of Addis pre-first century. You will never hear this description of Addis. This is the post-Jesus description of Addis. They modified Addis to match Jesus, not the other way around. No one is um, worshiping Heracles anymore unless you go to the movies. Heracles is the uh, Greek version of Hercules in the Roman pantheon. Well, Heracles, after the first century, starts to sound like Jesus. Suddenly, he's called the Logos. That was never the case before Jesus. Now, he's taking on the titles of Jesus. Suddenly, there are stories of Heracles walking on water. That was never the case. He never ascended into heaven. All these aspects of the Heracles story came from Jesus. Krishna, there are still people who are, of course, worshiping Krishna. Hare Krishna, for example, if you look at that offshoot. Well, it turns out after Jesus arrives, the Krishna story changes. Krishna starts to sound like Jesus. None of these attributes of Krishna were true before Jesus. This is how Krishna has been shaped. As a matter of fact, even today, Hare Krishna will describe Jesus. Leaders within this movement will describe Jesus as the perfect guru sent by God. If you're someplace in the world where Hare Krishna is being uh, worshipped, you know something about Jesus, Jesus just from the leaders who live there. Because even his sermons, his sermons, the descript, they, just, they retell the Jesus story when they're teaching their own adherents. You have to destroy the history of Hare Krishna also to get rid of Jesus. Now let's go to the next one. It's Mithras. No one's worshiping Mithras anymore. But after Jesus came on the scene, suddenly people were starting in the Mithraic religions were starting to do the Lord's Supper. They were never doing that in Persia. They only start doing that in Rome after Jesus. And Buddhism. A lot of Buddhists, Buddhist leaders love Jesus. They are constantly talking about Jesus. They see him as a man on the way to Buddhahood. They, they, they think of him as being part of their structure. As a matter of fact, when they talk about him, they repeat the story. All of this stuff about Jesus, they repeat. If you're someplace in the world where Buddhism is being worshipped or is active, you know something about Jesus just from your Buddhist teachers. So these are all the religions that existed before Jesus. All of them have modified, merged, or mentioned Jesus into the common era. Now, of course, the ones that follow Jesus, Islam, are you kidding me? Islam, in the scripture in Islam, Jesus is, is, is venerated. Jesus in the scripture possesses all of these attributes, born of a virgin, a wise teacher who ascends into heaven. And as a matter of fact, he is revered at a level higher than Muhammad. He is the judge of the living and the dead. He will come again according to Islam. So if you're someplace in the world where Islam is, is reigning, 
Guess what? You know something about Jesus from your scripture, the Quran. All of that stuff comes out of the Quran. Baha'i faith? Baha'u'llah saw himself as a manifestation of God. He also saw Jesus as a manifestation of God, and he mentioned Jesus in great detail. All of this could be learned from the scripture of the Baha'i faith. And they saw Jesus, Jesus Baha'i see Jesus as another manifestation, a wise teacher. There's a room, there is room for Jesus in the Baha'i faith. So if you are someplace in the world where Baha'i is being worshipped, you know something about Jesus from your leaders. Ahmadi Muslims? Ahmadi Muslims actually think that Jesus had a message particular for them. So they mention Jesus in great detail. And they see him as a wise teacher. So if you're someplace on the planet where Ahmadi uh, Muslims are worshiping, you know something about Jesus. And finally, New Age. It's really hard to even kind of tell you what New Age believers believe because there's no like systematic scripture for this. There's all kinds of different New Age beliefs. But I will tell you this, most New Agers like them some Jesus because Jesus is seen as a wise, like they love the Sermon on the Mount as a virtuous model for how to live, how to forgive. So it turns out, I'm gonna give you a map now and I'm just gonna put the layer of all of the non-Christian religions and where they reign, starting with the earliest ones we talked about, the Buddhists, the Hindus, all the way through the Muslims, Baha'i. So here you have a map of other, where other world religions dominate. Do you realize that virtually every corner of the planet, if you destroyed all Christian scripture, you would still know something about Jesus from the other world religions? As a matter of fact, you would know all of this about Jesus from non-Christian scripture. That's amazing. That's a lot. Try to do this with Buddha. Try to do this with Indra. Try to do this with any other religious figure. Can't do it. Turns out that every world religion at some point says, you can be part of us to Jesus. They all point to Jesus. Now, unsurprisingly, Jesus says, sorry, guys, I can't return the favor because these things aren't true. I understand why you want to grab a piece of the truth to legitimize something that's not true, but I am the only way to the Father. So we looked at this. Here's the fuse and the fallout of how we do it in criminal cases. And now I've showed you how we could do the fuse and fallout when it comes to the first century and why this points distinctly, uniquely to Jesus as the catalyst, the reason why the first century. I didn't talk about a lot of things today. I didn't talk at all about literature. Do you realize that Jesus has had more impact on literature than any other figure in the history of figures? No one's been written about more than Jesus of Nazareth. The second place finisher isn't even close. I don't care what metric you use. No one's been written about from just the literature in the first 400 years of the common era of non-Christians. You can completely reconstruct the story of Jesus to all of this detail from non-Christian sources early in the common era. And art, whatever art you think is important to you, there's lots of different isms. You know, my background, my bachelor's degree is in the fine arts. I have a design mate. Oh, don't even ask me. I have a design uh, degree, and then I got a master's degree in architecture, and then I left architecture <laughs> to, uh, to become a cop. So I love the arts. I've done a lot of study in the history of art. You will not find an ism. I don't care which ism you're looking at in the history of art. If it's the Dadaism, Popism, Expressionism, Impressionism, you, whatever your ism is, trust me, search for the top three artists in that ism. Look at their catalogs. They have one figure, one historical figure in common. 
Andy Warhol loved painting Jesus. He's not a Christian. Jesus provokes artists. No one's been sketched, sculpted globally, not just in the West, more than Jesus of Nazareth. And from just the art of the first 400 years of the Common Era, you can reconstruct image by image every single scene in every single gospel. You'd have to destroy these pieces of art in addition to the scriptures to get rid of Jesus. Music, you like music? Well, it turns out pretty much everything we did on the stage here is not uncommon. You, don't even, you couldn't even sing the songs that you like if it hadn't been for the history of Jesus and his followers because you probably are singing things that have harmonies. Well, harmonies were invented by Christians. You probably are singing major and minor scales. Those were invented by Christians for the church. You probably are singing, um, uh, you probably are reading musical notation in order to sing, right? They're reading the charts. I see one here sitting right here. Great chart. Well, thank you, Christian, for that, because there was no musical notation until a Christian invented it for the church. Where else in the world do people come every week to hear singers sing from a stage? That's called the church. Look at anything you like. Top 150 artists in the last year in any genre, I did it. I collected all of them from Billboard, IMDb, Rolling Stone Magazine, and I looked at every single one of those artists. Guess who's the one person everyone has a song about? My favorite is Frank Zappa's song. He wrote a song called Jesus Thinks You're a Jerk. That's a great song. But everyone has sung about Jesus. Why? And from just the music in the first 300 years of the common era, you can reconstruct not only the entire history of Jesus, but much of the rich theology of Christianity. And no one's had an impact on science and education like Jesus. That's right. I know it sounds amazing and hard to believe, but the science fathers of every major scientific discipline from modern astronomy to modern quantum mechanics are Christians. Christians have won more prizes, no, more Nobel laureate in the, in, uh, in the sciences than any other group combined times three. That's just true. We are not the enemy of science. We're the reason why science is the way it is, because Christianity catalyzed the sciences. And we invented the modern university. And just from the writings of the science fathers, their personal journals, you can reconstruct more about Jesus than you can from the personal letters of the church fathers. You can learn that from the history of science. Unless you're willing to destroy the history of science, you're not going to destroy Jesus. But my question is, why? What is it about Jesus that makes him history's person of interest? Why would this knucklehead be the guy who changes everything? I want you to think about that. These are all the other people in the first century. None of these people combined had the impact on literature, art, music, education, science, and world religions that Jesus has. Yet they had a much bigger platform. Why? These are all the world leaders in the history of really important, powerful world leaders. None of these people have had an impact on literature, art, music, education, science, and, and, and uh, world religions like Jesus. Nobody. These are all the deities and world religious leaders. These people are not being sung about, painted, etched. They're not being written about. Not like Jesus. They haven't had an impact on history like Jesus had. None of these people are responsible for what we now call the first century. And these are all the people who claim to be the Jewish Messiah. Did you realize there's a bunch more than just Jesus? For about 13 centuries, people claim to be the Jewish Messiah. And you don't even know that. You know why? Because they're not the Jewish Messiah. They're nobodies. So what is it about Jesus, this guy who was raised in a nowhere town, dies in a nowhere town, 
well, he dies in Jerusalem, but he doesn't really travel much. He's raised and born in two little small villages. He only has about three years to take care of anything in terms of public ministry. He never travels more than about 200 miles. He doesn't have an education like some of the people we know in history. The people who were religious rejected him. The people who were powerful, they hunted him. The people who said they loved him, they denied him, they left him, they betrayed him. He doesn't have the kind of education that most other people do who change history. He certainly never wrote a book, never, never wrote a sonnet, never led an army. Doesn't have a Twitter platform. <laughs> who could he be? Doesn't have any Instagram or TikTok. This is the guy. The guy who was unfairly accused, humiliated, beaten beyond recognition. The guy who is a nobody who then eventually they have to borrow a grave to stick him in the ground. This is the guy who changes history. How could that be? Why is this guy the person of interest? Well, I think one reasonable inference is that he may not be a person at all. Of the three options, a man, a myth, or the Messiah, one of those three options makes sense of history. The other two just don't. And he said he was the third option. He even said this. He spoke as though he was God himself. He didn't, the prophets would say, uh, the Lord your God says. The Lord Almighty says. Jesus never does that. Never says the Lord says. Jesus says, I say to you. I tell you the truth. They spoke for God. He speaks, speaks as God. And, and he even says this. He even says that he came from God. This got him in trouble. He said that things that belong to God like angels belong to him. This didn't make him popular amongst the Jews. He said he was equal to God. I want you to think about that. In the first century, if you're a Jew, you don't accept the worship of other humans. That's blasphemy. Only God accepts the worship of humans. When Paul meets Cornelius and Cornelius gets saved and he drops on his feet, uh, Peter rather, he, Peter says, get up. You don't worship me. I'm a man. You only worship God, yet Jesus never refuses worship that's offered to him. Never. He even says the name of God and uses it when identifying himself. There are people who will say, well, he didn't really mean it that way. Well, it sure sounds like if you read John 8, the Jews who were hearing this, they kind of thought he was saying he was God because they wanted to kill him for it. It says in Scripture that he has the authority to do the things that only God can do, only God creates, only God can forgive, yet Jesus can do that. Only God can grant eternal life, yet Jesus does that. Only God can judge the living from the dead, but even the Muslims think that Jesus will do this. This guy is not a person of interest at all. He is the God of the universe who ought to interest every one of you. Now, you're in this room today, and I know this church. I have been a huge fan of Mike Fabares for about, well, since I became a Christian. I told him the story. I used to come and see him when he was down south. I won't mention the name of that church. <laughs> you're in a great place. If you want to know what the Word of God says, you're going to be hard-pressed to find a better place in America than where you are right now under this teacher. But that being said, I know that there's probably some people here who are here for the first time today. Don't even know that. And there are people here probably who are here because their spouse. Seriously. Your spouse is the believer. And you, listen, this is good. You like it, it's, but it's not for you. And you've been coming for years to please your spouse. 
You're borrowing your faith. You're borrowing the experience from your spouse. There are students here who are here because their parents make them come. Hey, eventually they can make their own decisions and they'll make a different decision. Really? Is that because you're not sure if this is true? Okay, that has to end. There isn't a place for us right now in a culture that hates Christians if you don't know for sure this is true. This is true in a way I can demonstrate with evidence. This is true, true. If you've been sitting and coming because you're here for some other reason, it has to stop today. This is incredibly important. And Lewis said it this way. He says, look, if this is not true, it's of no importance at all. If it is true, though, it's of critical importance. The one thing it can't be is moderately important. It's not moderately important. Time is short. If there is a God who's powerful enough to create everything from nothing and have this kind of influence on history, well, that God is powerful enough to eliminate imperfection, including moral imperfection. If there's a God like that, he's not a good God. He is a morally perfect God. You might have a good day. I've had good days. I've never had a morally perfect day. I cannot stand in front of a morally perfect God. I might be able to stand in front of a good God, but not a morally perfect God. Seriously, if you have not considered what Jesus did on the cross for us, taking our punishment for something he didn't do as the one morally perfect, tell me, what are you waiting for? You think you have a Tuesday? If you're a police officer, you know you don't even have a Tuesday. We could die on the street tomorrow. You can't wait for Tuesday. Today is the day of decision. So if you haven't made that decision, don't leave here. Talk to somebody here. This is the best place for you to be going forward. You're here with family. They're waiting for you to become part of the family. Let's pray. Father, we know that sometimes we're just lazy. And sometimes we say we believe something without giving it much thought, really. And we sometimes will visit and spend time in a place where we aren't really even committed. There are people in this room right now, maybe who have never trusted you as their Savior, Jesus. They've never trusted you. They maybe even claim an identity, a Christian identity, but they've never said, no, God, I will turn. I, I need to repent from who I am. I need to, I, my way is not your way, Father. I get that, and I need to turn from that. I want to turn to you, Jesus, as my Savior. They've never said that. They've never thought that in their mind. They've never prayed that to you. So, Father, would you just give them that time today to give their lives to you, and then allow your Spirit to change them, to conform them to the image of your Son. Father, we ask for repentant hearts in this room. And we ask for everyone else who's been following you for years to be even more certain and more on fire. We give you today. We give you our lives. We give you this service. We give you everything we can possibly give you. And we pray it all in the name of your precious son, Jesus Christ. And everyone here says, amen. Amen.